Okay, if you have your Bible with you, will you please turn with me to the letter to the Ephesians? And I said that while I'm speaking, we're taking up a new theme. And I sort of introduced that theme last week. So we're gonna, I'm going to speak this morning and then we're going to take communion. And it's an open invitation for us to take communion together this morning. And that will happen after I speak. So I want to leave time for us to be able to put that into what we're doing this morning as well. So we'll be looking to do that. So the letter to the Ephesians and um, chapter 1 and verse 3. And I'm reading from the NIV and it reads like this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will be reached, will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. We're going to stop there and I'm going to take that um, passage for a moment or two. Uh, If you weren't here last week, I began to share, I introduced this theme, Letter to the Ephesians, calling it God's New Society. And so this morning I want to just take up these few verses, verses chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. And uh, my theme, if you're writing, I encourage people to write something down. It just helps you remember. Not because I think I'm wonderful, but it just helps. I find if I write something, it helps me remember. If I just listen, I forget, forget the first two minutes even. So, but if you are writing something down, my title this morning is Blessed Beyond Belief. Blessed Beyond Belief. Now, um, as we've been looking, Paul, I'm just going to have a... a, a Three-minute, four-minute recap, just to sort of set the theme, if you're here for the first time and you weren't here last week. Um, Paul, the man who wrote this letter to um, uh, believers in a place called Ephesus, which is on the west coast of Turkey. Uh, We were talking about this, and today it'd be on the west coast of Turkey, a city on the west coast of Turkey, but in a place called Asia Minor at the time. Paul wrote a letter to Christians around that part of the world. It was a circular letter, and he wrote this letter from captivity. 
And I say that because it's interesting to just note that. It might not mean too much to you at this moment. But this letter that he wrote and a number of letters were a time in his life when he was under what was called house arrest. And so he would have been in, in his home or an apartment or whatever the house was. And some Bible scholars say maybe even chained to another Roman soldier so he couldn't do a runner, in other words. He was confined. It wasn't solitary confinement, but he couldn't get very far. And um, within the four walls of his own home. And I find that quite spectacular because when you read the tone of what he writes, he writes as if he can, the world is his oyster. He writes as if he can see the whole of the universe, the whole of the world displayed before him. And yet you think he should be depressed because he's cooped up, chained to another soldier. He's probably in danger of his life, which he did lose his life later. And yet he writes a letter, and as we'll discover, that is spectacular in the way in which it's written. It's written as if it's from a, a heaven's eye view, not a bird's eye view, not from a lofty point like at the top of a mountain or whatever it is, the highest point of our country, but as if he can see from God's point of view, as if he can see from heaven. He's been given a picture of life, of the world, of the universe, of you, of me, of life, of family, of a way of life, the way the world could be and should be, and the way the world is in God. And he sees something that's spectacular. And all of this, even when he's chained up in a room, chained to another soldier, it is quite amazing as he shares and so he has a heaven or God perspective of life and it's this God perspective it's interesting this morning as we began to as we were worshiping you know Tim and leading the worship and the worship team and our team this morning leading us into God's presence saying lift up your eyes to the author of life that's one of the songs that we've sang now I've really sensed a real sense of God's presence here as we began to just lift our hearts and to look to him and this Letter is a God eye view, a heaven eye view on life. It's as if Paul's lifted up his eyes. You know, we were singing what, what Paul is saying in a moment or two. It's quite spectacular this morning. You don't realize sometimes what goes going on in our lives as we worship. And uh, Paul has this lifting up eyes view of seeing God's perspective on life. And this is so important. And as I said, um, so this... These, this book or this letter is being put together in a way for you and I that is bite-sized. It would have been as a, a straight letter written by someone would have written it by hand. He may have dictated it and someone else wrote it for him. And uh, it's been put into chapters and verses. It wouldn't have been like that in his day. It was a, just a straight letter. But it's been put in a way for you and I so that we can understand it and, and, and get to grips with it. The translators have done that for the Bible. And... It's in six chapters. And what I've said is this. Chapters one to three. I've encouraged everyone in our church to read Ephesians. You could read a chapter a day or a chapter a week. And in, you know, if you read it a chapter a week, you, in six weeks, you've read it. If you read it a day, six days, you've read it. And to go over and read this letter to the Ephesians and get used to it. Um, uh, Teresa um, got in touch with me and shared um, that read it in the message I think Teresa had been reading it in the message, and I, I went and did that. I went and reread it in the message, the translation called The Message, and it's spectacular. I, I thought it was a great piece of advice that she gave me, and I went and did that. And I would say to you, if you can get hold of the message translation of the Bible, have a read of it. It's in a modern style. It's, it's spectacular. Just a re one sitting, it's quite, quite an amazing read. 
But basically, six chapters that you've got in front of you, the first three, Paul deals with our position. And this, from verse chapters 1 to 3, Paul looks at the position that you and I and people have in God. He uses the term in Christ. And then chapters 4 to 6, he looks at practice, how we're to live. This is really important, and I'm going to talk about this, and you're probably going to get sick of me at some stage, if not already, perhaps. But I'm going to talk about this a lot, because position and practice, they go hand in hand. And this is really spectacular. Paul writes with a purpose. In this chapter, verse chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, he's, he looks at the position that you as a Christian have in God. It's an amazing position. It's an amazing position. Being in the heavenlies, all the blessings of heaven, all the riches that God has are given now to you as a Christian. That's your position. And then in chapters 4, 5 and 6, he looks at practice. Husband and wife, parents and children, your attitude to your job, the way in which you should live, your attitude to life, living in the light. When you get angry, how should you react? He looks at practice. But it's not what you have to do. All of that practice is all based on Our position, living in the light, being in Christ, being set free. So we need to know our position. Your position will really share your identity, who you are. It gives a perspective so that we're able to practice. Position gives perspective so that we can practice. I find that, and psychologists will say this, who you think you are, that's how you'll act. A psychologist I trained as a counsellor, and um, I understand this idea that I met people over the years, some very able people. I've met, you would say, they would look very attractive people. They would be very clever people, and yet they would think that they're rubbish, or they don't look very nice. It's what you think. It's your perspective on life. And so I've met some incredible, I've, I've met people that say, I could never do that. And then you think to yourself, you know, if you really believed and tried and, and really got, you really could. It's, and so what I'm saying now, Paul, this isn't just psychology. Now, psychologists just observe life. But this is a, a biblical fact. So let's put the psychology just to the side a minute and come back to the Bible, which is what takes priority for me. God's word takes priority over psychology. For me, psychology is an observation on life, but the priority is God's word on life. And that's for me, is the truth. But your position gives you your identity. It's who you are. And what Paul says to the people, and some of these people were slaves. Some of the people listening to him and reading this would have been considered in the Roman times the lowest of the low. But Paul says, you're not a slave. In God, you have all the benefits of heaven. You are free. And they began to think differently and act differently. The way you think will will show the way you act. This is why in the Bible we read these words. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We read in the New Testament. Put on the mind of Christ. Because how we think is the way we will act. And so position. And this is why Paul spends the first three chapters of this amazing letter. Speaking about you're in Christ. You have all the blessings of heaven. You are blessed within the heavenly realm. You are saved. You are freed. God loves you. God's grace is upon you. He wants to show people that their position is an amazing. Their identity is new creation in Christ. The old has gone. The new has now come. So what I, 
can't stress enough is as you read this and get hold of this, is look at your identity. Form a new identity in God. There's loads of programs on TV that look at makeovers and how to change your life and how to get the best out of life. The best makeover that you and I can have in life is on the inside of our hearts and lives is when we become born again, when we become renewed, restored to God. That's the best thing that can ever happen to you in your heart and in your life because what you think is who you are. And um, Paul speaks about this and So he's speaking of a new people, a new life, and a new society. And in this society that he's speaking of, this new life and this new hope that he's so amazed by, that he's so overwhelmed by, he says is wrapped up in the church. And uh, we'll look at what this means in the days and uh, the the weeks ahead. So chapter 1 is looking at being blessed beyond all belief. And these few verses I just want to look at in these next few moments. Paul is amazed He's absolutely overwhelmed. The way in which it's written, you, don't, you might not realize this, but verses, verses um, 3 to 14 is really one sentence. In the, in, in the way it would have been written, Bible scholars say it's like one sentence, but it's been put into verses for us. To, but Paul is gushing out something. It's like when, you, when one of your little children comes to you and wants to tell you everything that's happened today. And they just gush out. And it was, and this happened. And then we went, and then we had ice cream. And then we went to park, and we did this. And Paul is gushing out. Now, I'm being a bit simplistic, but the way in which verses 3 to 14 are written, he's gushing out like a little child, amazed. And God has done this, and we have got blessings, and we are forgiven. And it's just this amazing thing, and it's incredible. And he's almost going to wet himself, I suppose, if he could. (laughs) Almost. Because he's absolutely, well, that's what, that's what you know, little, little children do. That's what little children do when they're amazed, perhaps. And they're so, but I know I'm digging a hole for myself. So we, we will erase, we'll erase all of that a bit later on. But what I'm trying to say here is that what he's doing is, in, in these verses, it's, it's a load of stuff that he says. And he's absolutely gushing it. And he's absolutely gushing out the wonders of God and his God's love for mankind. I can't stress this. If you get hold of a, of a different translation, other translations try to grapple with this. And what Paul is writing and what he's saying is that this is amazing. There is an amazing hope, an amazing God who loves you amazingly, who's given you everything. And if you can really get to grips and if you can really understand what God has given you and in your life and has put into your spiritual bank account and what, how much God loves you and how he cares for you and that not how much he loves you, but who you are now in him, where you really are. You might think that you're rubbish. You might not be very good at such and such a thing. You may have been told you're no good. You're not going to be very good at this. But what God says is you're amazing, you're wonderful, and I love you. And Paul just absolutely goes for it. And it's amazing. And so he says this in a way that's really almost as if it's like he's singing praise Although to you and I, it's written down before us and we read it. And so it says, but he starts off, praise be to the God of our father, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, most Bible commentators say is if he's singing praise. It's a praise from his life. And just really mapping out all of the good things that God 
has bestowed upon us. So what I want to do, just for a couple of moments, is untangle the wonder. And how are we going to do that in about ten minutes? It's a torn order. But we're going to try and untangle the wonder of what he's saying. Now, I've took a long time, because as a casual reading, you wouldn't see that. But that's where this man is coming from. And, and so he's gushing out a load of stuff. It's amazing what God has done. So we're now going to try and untangle some of that wonder. And because you'll sometimes say to somebody, hang on a minute. I know you've got so much to tell me, you'll say to your child. But take a deep breath. Sit down. Now tell me. And what we're going to try and do now is say to Paul, take a deep breath. Sit down. Now tell me. And that's what we're going to try and do just in a couple of moments is untangle some of the wonder. So what I'm going to do is, is just pick out some key phrases, some key points. We could spend a lifetime looking at this. And uh, a man called Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones spent three years at Westminster Chapel, something like that, speaking on Ephesians. Well, I'm not Martin Lloyd-Jones and we're not going to spend three years. We're just going to have a, a, a number of weeks. So we haven't got the time to go into it in any great depth but we're going to pick out some key phrases and see how that applies to life. And then we're going to look at what does that mean to life. It's all very well knowing this stuff, but what does that, how am I going to live? How does that work for me? And that's what I want to try and do, is bring it practically into the heart of our lives. But if you can find your identity and position, then we've found everything. So position gives identity and perspective and it helps us in our practice. You know, position is important. Where he is, it, where Jesus is, that's where we are. Where he is, is where we are. What he has, is what we have. Position. What he has, is what we have. And what he does, is what we do. What he does, is what we do. A position is all important. It's not how much you go to church, how many prayers you say, and how much you read the Bible, it's who you are in your position with Christ. And this is the key to life. Because so many Christians, I notice, get disillusioned when church goes wrong. When another person lets them down. Yeah. When the pastor doesn't speak to them. When the ministry goes. When we get sick. It's not the things around us that count. And although they may be good, but it's not the position, that's the, not the position that I'm to take. It's the position that I have in Christ and who I am as a Christian and where I am with Jesus. And so where he is is where we are. What he has is what we have. And what he does is what we do. And this will be so important for our future and where we are to go and what we are to do. Okay, so uh, let's just, just pick up quickly then. I wanted to move on as uh, quick. Just, uh, that's just, uh, first things then. So, blessed beyond belief. The first area, there's three areas, and Paul lumps them into three areas. Um, blessed by God the Father, blessed through God the Son, and blessed God the Holy, through God the Holy Spirit. Three areas that we're going to look at. So, if you want to sort of link them together, he speaks about the blessings that we have through God the Father, the blessings that we have through God the Son, being in Christ, through Christ. And then he speaks about the blessings we have through God the Holy Spirit, being sealed in the Spirit. And so what we see here is the Trinity. We have a triune God, three in one. He's a triunity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In action, in our lives, throughout life. And uh, it's sort of helpful to just put them to those three areas just for a moment or two. So, but, but key phrase I want to look at. It says that God the Father, he chose us. 
and we are adopted. This is the first couple of phrases I want to just take hold of, just for a moment or two. It says there in verse 4, so through the blessings through God the Father, it says, for God, he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. You know, God chooses you and me. It's not through any human activity or any human goodness. As human beings, you know, we are so used today in the age in which we live. We are very man-centered. By that, I mean human-centered. We are humanistic in our philosophy. Humanism says that human beings are at the center of life. We are the captains of our souls, that we are in control of life. But then you take a tsunami to come our way that, that destroys nearly an entire nation. It, when, when the tsunami hit Japan, we realized that there are forces bigger than life, bigger than us. And so, so he says that he chose us, and it's God's activity, God's, God's activity in life. God is God. God is the Father. God, before the very creation of the universe, God chooses you and me. He chooses all mankind. He wants none to perish. But we, have a, we can turn around and say to God, as people do, not for me. Some say, our oh, church isn't for me. God's not for me. But it's God's divine activity. We can respond to his calling or not to. But it's not, it's not our activity. So you're not good in ourselves. That's what I'm getting at. It's not through you and me. Uh, God is the, it's through his choice. God chooses, it's God's activity. It's God's authority. God is in control. He's not taken by surprise. He has a plan, it says. This idea of him choosing means that it's God's choice. He sees all. It says, it says it there, for God chose us in him before the creation of the world. God's not taken by surprise by a double dip or triple dip, um, you know, uh, going through an economic time. God's never taken by. He can see all. He sees from completion. And so God isn't taken by surprise in anything, in life, in the world, in the universe, or in our lives. And it's God's activity. God's know is all known, but it's God's choice and activity in life. But how amazing is it that God's activity is towards you and towards me of his great love. God chooses you. I don't know about you, but when I was at school, and uh, playing football with me mates. You, know, you might know where this story's going to go. But I used to like playing football. And I wasn't not, not bad at football. Not the best, but not bad. But there's never that, there's that horrible feeling when you, stand, you used to stand by the, the, the wall. And you have two captains. It's like, you choose. And then they start picking. Is this beginning to make you feel a bit nervous already? You're getting sweaty palms, are you? And they start choosing. You think, they haven't chosen me yet. And they keep choosing. And they keep choosing. And you get picked last. And well, go on, have him then. Go on, have him then. It's not like that with God. He didn't go, and then I'm the last one standing by the wall. And then God said, go on, we'll have him then or have her then. It's all or nothing. It's all included. Everyone's included. So you don't have to stand by the wall thinking, he doesn't want me, he doesn't want me. And I'm the last resort. God's choice. It's amazing. His heart is incredible for you. That's what Paul is ecstatic over. He's amazed over. It says they're to be adopted. Goes on there to say that Christ has, God has chosen us. In verse 5, it says there, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. Adoption. 
Um, in Roman times, this, this would have been from a, uh, the Roman background, in Roman times, it was a patriarchal society. Patriarchal was the, f- the father, the head. Um, interesting, I come from Italian background, and it's quite patriarchal in the sense of, uh, you know, father, head of the home, uh, grandpa, head of the whole clan, that uh, type of thing. But even more so, in Roman, in Roman society, it was patriarchal. The father, the father in Roman society, the father of a family was almost godlike. I mean, this is alien to you and I. But in, in, in Roman society, the father had the, almost the power of life and death over his family. What he said went. It's alien to you and I. It's just not like that for us. But in Roman society, now when Paul is speaking about adoption, in Roman society, the father had the power to adopt or, or, or unadopt. And, and if, you, if you were adopted, um, you had all the rights. And so in, you, you find in Roman society, there were some Romans that were looked down upon because they were adopted. And they, they climbed the ranks of Roman society. But they should never have been looked down upon because they were given all the rights. If you were adopted, and even if you were a slave, and some masters adopted the slaves in their families because they were so pleased with them, and took them into the fold. If you were adopted into a Roman family, you received all the benefits and rights of that family. Even equally to over, over biological children, the biological family. You received equal rights. So if you were, and normally when you were adopted, you were adopted into a wealthy family because they had the money to adopt you. Okay? So you, got, you only were adopted if it was, there was wealth and it was a prestigious family. So when you were adopted, even in, no matter where you came from, um, you received all of the rights of that family. Now, it's spectacular because God the Father of heaven adopts you and I. And this wouldn't, this wouldn't have been lost on Roman society. God adopts us into his family. We had no rights. We were slave to sin. The Bible says that we were enslaved by sin. Our fallen nature. We turned our back on God. It comes through being living in Adam. We'll speak about that another time. But we were like slave to sin, and God adopts us into his family. When we're adopted, we become into the family of God and receive all the rights and benefits of heaven. Forgiveness, freedom, love, grace, mercy, all the host of heaven, the power of heaven is given into our hearts and into our lives. The whole of everything in heaven. And so we are adopted and have given, God gives us everything into our hearts and into our lives. A man called Watchman Nee said this, writing on what God has done for us. He says this, um, The secret of deliverance from sin is not to do something, but to rest on what God has done. He says, it's not what I do, but what God has done that counts. It's not what you and I do, but what God has done. That's grace. Everything's based on what God has done for you and done for me. Not what I do, but what God has done. Blessings therefore then. So in the blessings of the Father, he's chosen us, he's adopted us into his family. And now as a Christian, I have all the benefits of heaven, all of the forgiveness of heaven, all of the power of heaven at our disposal. For you, towards you, and towards me. Freedom, forgiveness, love, hope, security. The whole, into the family. We are now called being in the family of 
God, irrespective of denomination. It's not how much you do. It's not based on how much you go to church. How many Hail Marys, I come from a Catholic background, my, my, my background would be initially Catholic. It's not how many Hail Marys I do, it's not based on any of that stuff. It's not on how much you read the Bible and how much you do or don't do. It's based on what God has done, given his son and drawn us into his family. That's amazing and that's what God has done for me. Secondly, it says there, through the benefits through Christ, Christ The son of God. Blessings through Christ. We see a couple of things there. It says in verse 7 that in him, that's in Christ, you have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with his riches of God's grace that is lavished upon us. We have redemption and forgiveness of sin. You think, what on earth is all that about? The word redemption, to redeem The word redeem literally means this. It's a purchase price to set someone free. To redeem is you, it's a purchase price to set someone free. In Rome and the Roman Empire, there were seven million slaves. Seven million people in slavery. You could go to the slave market and a rich owner could, somebody could buy your freedom and they would redeem you. And they would pay a price. They'd pay a large fee, a substantial fee, for you to get your life back. That's the the picture of the Roman market. And that word, the particular word, is a a word that literally means um, the slave price. The slave price. Now, it's not lost on you and me, because it says there that the price is Jesus' own very blood. It says, you have been redeemed through the blood of Christ. In him, you have redemption through his blood. And it's through Jesus Christ. We, are, we as human beings are enslaved to sin. We're enslaved to a, a sep- internal separation between us and God. And so our freedom, and so we were enslaved to that, going to hell. And so what God has done through his son is bought our freedom. And it's paid through the blood of his own son. Through the blood of his own son. And so we've been given freedom for, and forgiveness. goes on to say there, the second word that he uses is forgiven. You are being forgiven. The word forgiven means to be carried away. So the condemnation that was over us is now forgiven. It's been taken off of our lives, carried away. The idea there is, what, is what's called the scapegoat. In the Old Testament times, the priest would come. They would get a, 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 a pure goat or lamb. They would confess all the sins of the nation on the lamb. And then they set the lamb or goat off into the desert. It's called the scapegoat. That's where you get the term scapegoat from. And so all the sin would be confessed from the nation onto the goat, onto the lamb, set off into the desert. And Jesus becomes your and my scapegoat. We're forgiven. The sins come off and are carried on him. He's the lamb of the world that takes away the sin of the world. And so the picture there is forgiveness is carried off me and onto Jesus Christ. I find that quite amazing because I don't know about you. I was a pretty naughty boy up to, the, up to 20 years of age. I, I didn't really care about God or anything. Although I was brought up in a Catholic sort of background at home, I didn't really believe in anything. And even when I didn't believe, Jesus still died for me. I find that pretty incredible. And dies for you and I right now. And uh, he takes, and so it says that he's redeemed, he buys us our freedom, and he carries the power of sin over our lives. Forgiveness. Forgiven. Absolutely forgiven. And it's not done, and look at how it's done. It's done generously. 
Look at this. It says there, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he has lavished on us with all wisdom. God lavishes. And so the idea there is that God is generous. I don't know your picture of God. Is it of some sort of big ogre? Oh, I better go to church. I've got to sit in this seat. I'm freezing. I can't just walk up and go out now. We all feel like that, don't you? I've got to sit there. I've got to go to church. I've got to pray more. I've got to do more stuff. It's not like that. God is incredibly generous. God, it says he lavishes his love. It's like... There used to be a, a, a TV series years ago. I'm going to show my age now. It's called Cracker Jack. You're showing your age as well. Rich has been on it. And uh, there, was this, there was this game. And in Cracker Jack, you'd have this game. And the kids would go there. They'd stand at the front. And they'd put all these toys, boxes of toys. You were nodding your head. Some of you thinking, oh, if only it was me. And you're putting these toys on. And they keep putting these toys on. And, and they wouldn't stop it until they all fell off. And then you could take what you carried away. And God just keeps putting his not toys on. God just keeps, the word lavish means he just keeps putting on love, forgiveness, mercy, hope, kindness, care. It's just like the word lavish. Paul can't even describe it. It's like a deluge. It's incredible. And that's how God feels about you. You might not feel about that like yourself, but that's how God feels about you. And that's the position that we need to get under. We need to get ourselves under that amazing, incredible, generous love of God. And so it says that he's redeemed you, forgiven you, and it's amazed through an amazing generosity that he lavishes on your life. Finally, final blessing God, through God the Spirit. So we're just trying to unpack, get the feel of what our position is in God. Forgiven, set free, loved, lavished. God is generous. God cares about you. You're in Christ where he is. You are in the heavenly realms. Mercy, it's not what we do. It's what God does. So it's not how much we do. It's all that what God has done in our lives. And finally, he says this, and there's a guarantee we all like a good guarantee, don't we? We all like a good guarantee. People spend a lot of money on their guarantees, but there's a guarantee that you can, is priceless. This is the guarantee for life in God. And it's verse 14, and with this we'll be concluding. Who, it says there, um, having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to his praise and glory. Having believed, you have a deposit guaranteeing. It's the Holy Spirit guaranteeing our inheritance. Seal. We are sealed in the Holy Spirit guaranteeing our inheritance. There is a guarantee for life. You might think, oh, I don't know if I'm going to, I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to go to heaven. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. The word seal literally means this. Signet ring seal. It's a signet ring seal. It's in the old days where a king would take his ring and there would be wax over the letter or the document and the king would put his ring into the wax and seal it. It was sealed. And to say that this document is now binding, legal and has authority and guaranteed by the power of the king. And the word seal there literally means God has signet ringed you. 
by the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes into your heart and mind, God's signet rings you. And all of his authority and his love, guarantee, it's a guarantee that you're not going to be lost. That you're heaven bound, that you are forgiven, that you are free. That you're forgiven and that you are free. I've met lots of people that think, well, I don't know if I'm a Christian. I don't know if I'm going to be able to keep it going. I don't know if I'll be able to carry on. There's a guarantee. Rely on the power and person of the Holy Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit doesn't just make you shake. He's a guarantee. Oh, he might make you shake, by the way. He doesn't just make you cry or make you laugh. And he might do all those things. But he's a guarantee. Guarantee. Guarantee seals our hearts. And that brings a seal and it's a security. We are secure. We can be secure in God. So royal. So, so the signet ring is authority and ownership. It shows that God's hand is on us and that we belong to him. If you're a Christian, we belong to him. So as we finish right now, what's your position? Our position is forgiven, set free, sealed, heaven. But not just on, on, in heaven, but on earth. We may know all of that love, forgiveness, freedom, power, um, hope, care, love. You are a winner in God. Um, people say to me, oh, you always sound quite positive, Adrian. You always talk about attitude and, and uh, altitude and looking on the bright side of life. It's not, not being all psychological. It's a fact that God is good and God is great. And so I'm looking to get my identity from who God is. And so our position is my identity. And um, I just want to say this this morning. In life, we need to reposition ourselves so that we're in position. You know, my heart strays. God doesn't stray. It says the Lord will never leave us nor forsake us. But my human heart can stray. I can stray because I can get very busy in life. I can have a lot of stuff that needs doing in life. I, can get, I could stray because I get very upset. I find if I get upset about something, you get angry and really upset, incensed, it can take you off course. You can, you can, your boss may put a lot of work on you. So you can get very busy in life and be weighed down with a lot of cares and burdens. You might be anxious. You, you might be really blessed and have a lot of things going, be taken away, taken off on a tangent. I find that in life, because of my human nature, I need to make sure that I am in that position. Now, my, the Bible says that's who we are in Christ, but I can stray. This is why in the book of Galatians, it says, keep in step with the Spirit, because I can stray. So I would say this this morning to you and I, what a great position to be a Christian and I don't say that, look, look at me, look how great I am. I just say, thank God. That's why this morning, as I began to sing, looking at God, you know, we said, we, we lift up our eyes. Look at your position. When we sing that song next time, just think about your position and lift up your eyes to the position in God. That's what I was doing this morning, thinking of who God is, where I am in God in my life. But also I need to reposition myself. The way you reposition yourself, it says in James chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, submit yourself to God. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It's as simple as this. James chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. James 4, 7 and 8. This is, these are words of reposition. Are you upset about something? Have you took off on a tangent? Have, uh, have, are you, is your life full? Are you anxious? Uh, do you realize and think, hey, no, I am. I'm not where I was as a Christian. I'm not, do you, are you not sure where you are as a Christian or where you are as a person? Then get yourself in position. How do you get yourself in position? How do you reposition? Submit to God. I tell you what, you're submitting to that chair that you're sitting on right now. You're giving all of your weight to that chair. In other words, submit to God. I'm not saying sit on it. Give your whole weight to God. Give your life. 
Simple as that. Submit, that's what it means. Just like you're submitting to that chair. And then draw near to God. I want to be close to you. Something amazing happens. God says, and I will draw near to you. Let's pray. We're going to take communion together. And as we take communion, we're going to draw near. We're going to do that right now. And while we take communion, the worship team are going to play. And so this morning, Father God, we submit to you. We thank you for the amazing position that we have. Forgiven, free, chosen, lavished, love, all the benefit of heaven, everything that could possibly be given and done, and more than I can even ask or imagine. Not what I do, but what you've done. We say thank you this morning, Father God. And as we come to communion, your blood poured out, your body broken. We just want to say that we are so glad that we are found in you. And so, Father God, if I found that my life has strayed, I've been weighed down. I'm not sure my, where I am. There's things that have upset me, clouded my vision. I look to you. I lift up my eyes and look towards you, Jesus. And we come to this communion time saying thank you thank you so much that you give up everything so that I might be free not just free for heaven in the future but free on earth today to live a life free that's amazing new life today not just for the future and so Lord we take this communion right now thankful hearts loving hearts see our hearts For we want to be found in you. In Jesus' name we pray. The way we're going to do communion this morning is we're going to come up out of our seats. We're going to encourage you whenever you want to and how you want to. And with this we'll be closing, okay? So there's no official closing, but we will close with this this morning. So while the team play and we worship, on each, there's two tables. One this side of the auditorium to my right, one to the left. There's bread and there's the cup. And we're going to ask you to just file down from where you're coming. You go to either side, what's most easy for you to get to. And take the bread and take the cup. You might want to go back to your seat. You might want to pray with somebody. But just come. This is an open table. You do not have to be a member of this church. Only to believe in God and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That qualifies you now to take the communion. I don't know what your church tradition might be, but you're welcome this morning to come And we're going to take communion together. So I would say come up out of your seats and just go to the table and take it as you come. God bless you.